I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to Genesis, and today brings us to Genesis 18 as we continue our series in Genesis, chapter 18. And today I want to talk about the first sermon I ever preached. Uh, I was probably about 17 years old, if I remember correctly, and uh, had since God's call in the ministry kind of been affirmed in it, confirmed in it, uh, and so my test for preaching came when my pastor let me preach on a Sunday night. And I remember the sermon itself being okay. The pastor helped me a lot, and so I had some good resources and some good help. But the the most interesting thing, I don't want to discount God pre- God's Word being preached, but the most interesting thing in my mind that stood out was what I decided to wear. I wore uh, a sky blue button-up shirt, that I left untucked with a loosely tied pink tie. I remember that my unbuttoned shirt is untucked with baggy khaki shorts that are frayed around the edges. Uh, and to top it all off, well, I had my long swoopy hair, but uh, I also wore red and red and white checkered skater shoes. And I thought I was cool. And I was trying to be cool for these folks that I was preaching to. Uh, and one thing that's kind of ironic to me about um, the sermon that I preached was that a big part of it was talking about how much of life is a test. And uh, it didn't occur to me that what I wore was a, a test of whether I'd be invited to preach again. Uh, but it is true that so much of life is a test. What we believe, or the principles that we hold, or what we might train for is put under a microscope, put under pressure to see if there's anything there of value. So the healthy person will one day uh, be tempted to eat pizza. Uh, The runner, right, will one day need to run a marathon. Uh, The karate guy will, or girl, will need to compete for the black belt. There's a lot about that's being said about the police response in Uvalde, if you've read up on it. And I don't know which reports are true, but if some are true, when the time of testing came, it seems like they were unprepared. I don't mean to make a stance in regard to that, but only to show that times of testing can be as simple as what you decide to wear to an important event, uh, or as... Or it could be deadly serious. It could be how a a waitress treats you. uh, How other drivers uh, cut you off. Could be complications at work. Could be diseases and sicknesses. Times of testing come. What you believe, what you train for will be put under pressure. In many ways, Hagar was a test of Abraham's faith back in chapter 16. God promised Abraham offspring, and then he was tested with Hagar to see if he really believed that. Will God really give me offspring through Sarah? And he failed that test. And in many ways, Abraham is tested again here in chapter 18, and he'll be tested again in chapter 22 with Isaac. But here in chapter 18, he's tested. God promised him in chapter 17 that he will be the father of nations in order to bless them. That was last chapter, last week. And now Abraham is being tested whether he actually believes that. 
But more importantly, and this is really the idea that this sermon hangs on, God is testing whether Abraham's communion is changing Abraham's condition. Is Abraham's communion with God changing Abraham's condition before God? And that's the question that arises for us when testing comes. Does communion with God change you? Is it changing you? Are you being transformed by God because of your relationship with God? And testing is meant to bring that out. Answer comes with testing. God, unfortunately, doesn't just zap us. Alright, I think sometimes when we pray for grace, we think, alright, God, give me grace to obey, and we want God to go, here's grace. Enjoy it. God doesn't work that way. He uses human agency. He uses our, our willful desires and our choices. He, he tests us. He already knows what's in our hearts. He already knows exactly what we're going to do. He's an all-knowing, all-sovereign God. But He does it for our benefit. That we might see what's truly in our hearts and that we might apply what He's teaching us. By His grace. That's exactly what we see in Abraham and Sarah here in this chapter. It, it's a four-layer test for us to see. For, that it was written for our benefit. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. These things are written for our benefit. So it's a test for us to see whether we are truly being transformed and changed by God. In the same way that Abraham and Sarah were meant to be changed by God as well. So I want to invite you to read uh, with me or, or listen as I read God's Word. I'm, it's not on the screen today. But chapter 18, starting in verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him, Abram, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you. About this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? 
seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep the righteous away with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous spares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth, judge of all the earth, do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abram answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Bit of a long chapter, uh, but one that might be familiar to some of us. And, and this chapter begins the same way it began in chapter 17, with the Lord appearing to Abraham. And this helps us, in our minds, make a connection between this chapter and chapter 17. And in chapter 17, we're not told how the Lord appeared to Abraham. He just did. But, but here we're told His appearance came in three men. And so we're introduced to the first area of testing. Warm generosity. We're not told why God appears in three men. Uh, some say it's a picture of the Trinity. Others say it's God with two messengers or, or angels. And we're not told whether Abraham immediately recognizes it as God or not. Actually, that word where he says, uh, my Lord or O oh Lord, is the same word that's used to refer to kings or masters. Uh, and so Abraham may have suspected that this is God, uh, but either way, he finds out soon enough that it is God in the course of their time together. But the important point is that God appears as three strangers. We could chalk this whole passage up, up to just good hospitality. You know, many cultures, uh, even today, among the Middle East and other foreign cultures, uh, have a very high standard for hospitality that requires this kind of welcome. He gives them a place to rest and refresh, prepares a good meal for them and, and waits on them. When I was a teenager, I had the opportunity to go to Africa for the first time and, and uh, the family that my, me and my friends stayed with were so welcoming. One of the family members gave up his, his room for us and his bed uh, and, and went to stay with someone else so that we could stay there and, and they cooked their best meals for us. 
Unfortunately, their meals didn't sit well with American stomachs, so um, we uh, had to use our water bottles to hide some of it to make it look like we ate it. Um, uh, looking back, I feel an immense gratitude toward this family. What a great family, but also uh, a shame for being a poor guest at times. Um, but anyway, uh, the reason that this is a test for Abraham is precisely because these are three strangers. Three foreigners. Abraham doesn't know where they're from, but he does know they're from a foreign place, a foreign land. And listen, this is a test because if Abraham is truly to bless all nations, he needs to be welcoming of those nations when they come to him. Abraham's life right here is meant to be a pattern for Israel later and for the church now. We're not merely to see this as just good old hospitality. We're to see this as Abraham filling his role to bring the glory and knowledge of God to all nations. Unexpected though their coming might be. And if we're to apply this rightly, we need to think of our own cultural moment. I mean, maybe one of the most perennial political topics that we talk about is immigration, uh, and now Afghan and Ukrainian refugees and Muslim refugees. Hispanic people coming from the South to get to America. And, and listen, the challenge is this. Where many people will see immigrants or foreigners as intruders, Christians are challenged to see them as nations. Nations that God is orchestrating to come here where they have a unique opportunity to hear the Gospel in a way that they've never been able to hear it before. Some people believe in what's called the Great Replacement Theory, which holds that foreigners and immigrants are attempting to replace uh, the European-American. That's what the guy uh, who shot up the Buffalo grocery store believed. He believed that minorities, foreigners, were trying to take over our America. Uh, We reject that because we believe in a great Christ who welcomes all nations. And the test is whether our communion with God has given us this warm generosity that we see in Abraham. Whether our hearts are wide enough to welcome those who are unlike us and whose way of life is different from us. Who are quite foreign to us. Whether Abraham knows it or not, he's sharing a meal with God here. And this is important because sharing a meal is a sign of friendship in Scripture. When the priests are to eat of the sacrifices, it's to show, it's to signify the peace that the people of God enjoy with Him through the sacrifice. This is why Jesus is always eating with sinners. And we eat with God too. When we take the Lord's Supper, that is our dining with the Lord God. We're dining with Christ. And the test is whether our communion or our fellowship or our relationship with God is actually transforming us to display the kind of warm generosity that will bring blessing to all peoples and all nations. That's the test. It's whether knowing or whether your relationship with God is actually transforming you. I recently saw an article 
that talked about how younger people are lonelier than ever. A greater portion of the younger generations are, are lonelier than they ever have been. Uh, dependence on technology, social media, that sort of thing. And one college student described her experience on campus as bumping into people you know, but having no real connection with them. Uh, and this kind of uh, breakdown uh, is, is one reason why we have a breakdown of trust in our culture. I don't know if you guys have seen that or felt that. There's just a general lack of trust in each other in our culture right now. And that's, that's the whole deal is, is knowing someone should lead to trust. I mean, unless they're just vile, right? Knowing someone leads to your trust in them. And whether we know God will be tested, especially if it's a trusting knowledge. That's the second test we see here, trusting knowledge. Last week, we saw that, that when God revealed himself to Abraham, he reveals himself as El Shaddai, or, or God Almighty. And the challenge was whether Abraham believed that. And it's the same for Sarah. God asks uh, Abraham in verse 9, where is, your, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. Listen, this, this is a promise long time coming. It, it, he gave this promise all the way back in chapter 12. Many years have passed, but now he will, he's being more specific. He's saying it's going to happen next year. But in the tent, Sarah is listening. Now Abra, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, so she was menopausal. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So, so not only is, is Sarah menopausal, but she and Abraham haven't even had sexual relations in a long time. I mean, one writer said, they're just that old. <laughs> because of this, she laughs. She laughs because of how ridiculous this sounds. Remember, last chapter, Abraham laughs too. God gives him these extravagant promises. Abraham laughs, and now Sarah laughs. And the laughter is meant to show that this sounded ridiculous to them. This wasn't a laughter like, I can't believe this is incredible. It's a laughter as in, yeah, right. It's like the salesman who comes to your door and promises you that if you just invest in his product, you'll be a billionaire by next year. Ha! Slam the door in his face. Maybe some of you would do that. I'd, I might entertain him for a minute and then be on your way. Or, or maybe the product, right, that makes, that promises to make you look 20 years younger. Ha! And, and that's the thing. God has always been in the business of making extravagant promises. Promising this old man and this old woman that they would become nations and kingdoms through a son of their own. Promising Moses that he could rescue his people who have no army from the greatest army on earth. Promising David that he would never fail to have a descendant on the throne. Promising a woman that she would never thirst again. The difference between God and a salesman is that you aren't in a relationship with a salesman, but we are with God. And that's true for Sarah too. Sarah should know God's power. She should know Him, but and that knowledge should lead to running to Him, not running from Him. Do you see what, see what happens? She laughs, 
God calls her out and she tries to deny it because she was afraid. Truly knowing God, all of His holiness, all of His justice, all of His mercy should cause us to run to Him, not run away from Him. That's the difference between worldly fear, you know, being just fearful, and godly fear, the fear of God. Worldly fear tries to, to hide from God. It may not always um, look like that, but, but what worldly fear looks like is trying to hide behind religiosity. Oh, I, I pray all the time. I go to church all the time. You're hiding from God through your relig- religiosities. Sometimes it's self-righteousness. Right? That's the, the Pharisee's problem. Uh, a good life. You, or you hide from God from, with pleasure. You, you, you feel right that this fear or, or, or whatever, and you try to hide from pleasure. It's, it's when we make excuses for sin, saying sin, our sin's not that bad, or I didn't mean to, or we blame another person for our sin. That's, that's worldly fear. We, we're hiding from God behind something. Holy fear causes us to run to the very one we've sinned against. Yeah, God is the one we've sinned against. God is the one with the power to condemn us. God is the one whose wrath is on us. But He's the very one that we need to be running to. So we lay ourselves bare before the God who sees all. I mean, He's he sees your darkest thoughts, your vilest words. He sees all of your, your crooked and, and dark desires. And the test is whether our knowing God leads to a trusting knowledge. Whether we believe who He is, who He says He is. Listen, and this kind of test is all around us. Just this week, I saw a Facebook post, and he's talking about the gas prices. Goodness, we can talk about gas prices, can't we? And the economy and like a coming great uh, depression, like kind of similar to what happened in the 20s. And, and the Facebook post said this. It said, I hope all of you have the knowledge to fend for yourself. Now, it's not bad to know how to fend for yourself. But even more important than knowing how to fend yourself is whether you have the knowledge of God. Do you know the God who is sovereign and powerful and caring and loving? Do you actually actually believe He would provide for you in the middle of the impossible? Do you really believe that? It's a test of trusting knowledge. Will you trust the God you know? The next area of testing is similar. I grew up playing soccer in Mississippi. Soccer in Mississippi. Um, that's like wearing a shirt for PETA in Bass Pro. It's just out of place, okay? Soccer in Mississippi don't fit with each other, just like PETA and Bass Pro don't fit with each other. I'm not advocating for PETA, not, not even a little bit, okay? All right, anyway, uh, it's just out of, my whole point, it's just out of place, okay? It doesn't fit. And so one year we had two foreign students uh, one from Germany, one from Brazil. And, and knowing them and learning their play style completely changed the way we played soccer. Like we actually knew what we were doing because of them. Knowing them changed us. They, they changed our behavior radically. We, we passed more. We had more trust in each other. We learned how to become more open for other players. We had more control of the ball. We had more confidence. 
In the same way, knowing God should change our lives and our behavior. Especially in the realm of neighborly mercy. That's the third area of testing that we see. Neighborly mercy. Abraham and Sarah have not been good neighbors up to this point. Um, He lied to the king of Egypt in chapter 12 and brought curse on him instead of blessing. He quarreled with his nephew Lot. He he got his Egyptian servant pregnant and sent her out to the desert on her own. So they haven't been very neighborly and they haven't been very merciful either. That's why God has to demonstrate it for them. In verse 17, God asked Abraham a rhetorical question. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him. Notice the twofold promise there. The promise to become a great and mighty nation, and the promise to bless all nations. But it's through this question that God is demonstrating relationship. Peter Gentry explained it this way. The question demonstrates the fact that God has a covenant relationship with Abraham and this type of relationship especially requires integrity. That is, openness and transparency in the context of faithfulness and loyal love. These are precisely characteristics that Abraham and his wife Sarah have not shown in relationship with fellow humans or God. The rhetorical question then shows that Yahweh is modeling for Abraham and Sarah the kind of covenant relationship he would like to have with them. In other words, relationship precedes requirement. It is through having relationship with God that we see what He is like, how He acts, how He responds, and through knowing Him are we made to be like Him relationship before requirement, relationship before rules. This is exactly what God goes on to explain. Look at verse 19. For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. The purpose of Abraham's covenant relationship with God is to become like his covenant God. And that means, as God says here, to keep the way of the Lord by doing justice and righteousness. Righteousness and justice. Now, I don't know if you guys can remember all the way back to Isaiah. Do you remember going through Isaiah together? That word pair, righteousness and justice, very important in Scripture. And we can summarize it that word pair, justice, righteousness, by saying it means to treat other people in a genuinely human way. You treat them as they are, as, as the image of God. I mean, Jesus summarized it the best when he said, when he taught the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Neighborly mercy. And listen, we are tested with neighborly mercy all the time. The restaurant worker who gets your order wrong. The foreigner on the phone from customer service. The homeless guy being where he shouldn't be. How we treat our spouses or our children. Your brother or your sister you think is good for nothing. The elderly who can no longer take care of themselves. 
coworker whose car breaks down. All of those instances are not just opportunities, but tests to demonstrate neighborly mercy. The world can stand aloof from all of this. That good-for-nothing brother and sister, they can write them off. That homeless person, they don't have to care about them. The world doesn't have to bother with other people's messes. But Christians who are in relationship with the God who did not come to be served, but to serve, have no other option. And, and that test comes all the time. A neighborly mercy. And perhaps the greatest test of neighborly mercy comes in interceding for them. That's the last area of testing, which I'm going to call fervent mission. Because of his relationship with Abraham, God reveals to Abraham what he's going to do. Right? This is really awesome of God. God is in a relationship with Abraham, and he's not hiding it from him. He's, he's telling him, this is what I'm going to do. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. If not, I will know. Uh, several times now in Genesis, we've been warned <laughs> that Sodom is not a good place. There's a lot of sin there that's an, actually an evil place. So uh, actually at the outset, we, we aren't to expect that there's going to be a lot of hope for Abraham in changing God's mind here. But here's the important point. God revealing His plan to Abraham gives Abraham the chance to respond. And Abraham responds by interceding. He stands on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and pleads that they be spared. He pleads for the cities. And remember, Lot lives in Sodom. And, and, and this is the second time Abraham is having to rescue Lot. Back in chapter 14, Abraham rescues Lot from worldly kings with military might. But here in chapter 18, Abraham is trying to rescue him from the hand of God. God Almighty. It's not the, the big bad boys from the east that Abram is fighting against. It's God now. And as Christians, we know and believe it is far Far more terrifying to fall into the hands of God's wrath than it is to fall in the hands of any evil human. Jesus Himself said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So Abraham began here to intercede on behalf of the nations. He's finally beginning to do for the first time what God has called him to do since chapter 12. To be a blessing. And Abraham doesn't argue. He doesn't say spare them because nephew my, my lot, my lot, my nephew lot is there. I don't, don't spare them because of family or whatever. He has to argue on the basis of God's character. What does he say? I love this. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is what is right? If there are if there are fifty righteous people, forty five, forty, 
30, 20, 10 righteous people. He's arguing on the basis of God's righteous character. And we know the story. We know that Abraham doesn't succeed in rescuing these cities, but he does succeed in getting Lot rescued. And this speaks to God's mercy that He will not let the, the righteous be swept away with the wicked. Lot, Lot doesn't seem very righteous to us, but we learn in, from Hebrews that he is righteous. That, so it speaks to his mercy as well as to his justice. He destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, and guess what? His judgment on them is righteous and is just and is good. It's very good. But in God's sovereign plan, like Abraham, we are invited to intercede on behalf of the nations. Yes, God knew that He would destroy Sodom, but just as His judgment reflects His character, so does intercession. God exercised His character in judging Sodom, but Abraham is reflecting God's character through intercession. So we see both aspects of His character here. And listen, belief in God's sovereignty or His judgment should never lead to a callousness on our parts. If you're callous because of suffering or the plot of the lost or the nations, because God is sovereign and He's just, you've not read it right. In fact, His sovereignty and His judgment should lead to fervent mission. Because guess what? That was us. And if we did not have someone pleading for us on our behalf or speaking the gospel to us, we'd be lost. You'd be under that judgment still. And who are we to keep that for ourselves? Who are we to say, well, good luck everybody else. I've got my ticket to heaven. It's misreading God's mercy and His sovereignty. And that test will reveal whether your heart is like God's or not. The good news is that we have a greater intercessor than Abraham. Where Abraham succeeded in rescuing only just a handful of righteous people, and they barely got out, Jesus succeeds in rescuing countless ungodly people. Paul wrote in Romans 5, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. The godless. The ungodlike. The unrighteous. The unloving. The ungracious. The unmerciful. You are ungodly. You deserve to be swept away with Sodom here. You deserve every ounce of God's wrath for an eternity, but Christ died for the ungodly. For you. And the good news beyond that is not only that Christ rescues us from wrath, but it's all sufficient for our obedience. It is not in your own strength that you can go and demonstrate God's character to the world. Through your own strength, you would fail every test that comes your way. It is only Christ's strength in you. So seek Him and depend on Him with all your might. All that you can muster. 
Because He is all you need for the time of testing. Christ endured the ultimate test for you when He died for your sins and gives you the grace and the strength to endure all tests with joyful obedience. And that's the good news. So let's respond to Him rightly this morning. Let's pray. Father God, You are a God of testing. You sent people our way and crises our way, pressures our way, trials. You send them our way all the time and they are opportunities for us to see our hearts and to apply Your Word. To apply Your grace. To depend on Your Spirit. To pray to our priest, Jesus. We have these opportunities each and every day. Multiple times a day. And we miss them because we're disobedient, we're sinful, we're stuck on our own pleasures and desires. Time of testing will come for us. I pray that You would give us open eyes to see them. Hearts to to receive what You are doing. And faith to apply Your Gospel. Faith to apply Your Word that we would follow You obediently. That we would walk before You in justice and righteousness. Bringing the blessing of Christ to all peoples. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.